Speaking of gifts, what a blessed gift that God has given us to allow us to be together this morning to lift our voices and our hearts to Him in praise and to uh, encourage one another to be together for that express purpose of stirring one another up to love and good works. As we're worshiping Him, as we're remembering the sacrifice of His Son, as we're offering the gifts from what He's given to us back for His service, and as we have this fellowship together, just what a blessed gift that God has given us. I'm thankful for you being here today. We're mindful of those who could not be with us today. We're praying for them, for those who are traveling, for those who are ill, for those who for some other reasons are unable to be with us. We're thankful for visitors with us. What a great blessing that is as well. As the Lord uh, encourages us through all of these things. Uh, lately, we've been sort of looking at these sketches of evangelism, and occasionally it's good to, as we consider sketches of what evangelism looks like, also to think about what evangelists look like. And so I wanted to take a moment today to consider with you the son of encouragement. I've been talking a lot about encouragement since I got up here. That is uh, by design because I am encouraged to be here, and it also ties in with the theme of our lesson. Barnabas is one of those great character studies. We know a good bit about him, uh, but sometimes we don't think about how much we know about him and what that means for us. Why did God reveal the things he did about these people? In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7, I'm convinced that the text here is actually talking about elders, but I don't think it uh, would be false to apply this to others who came before us in the faith and have taught us. Hebrews 13, 7 says, Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. And the concept here of imitating somebody's faith, I think, is a uh, certainly a biblical con uh, uh, concept. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. And there's lots of other examples. God has given us these examples to be imitated in their good faith. And so I want us to consider a little bit about Barnabas, the son of encouragement today. If you'll join with me, most of our text will come from Acts chapter 4, which our brother just read a few moments ago. I want to consider first this name that he's given, son of encouragement. There are several things we can think about. First is that this is a nickname. The apostles have, have given him this name, and we'll talk a little bit more about that before. But Joseph, uh, later, uh, Joseph is a very common name in the first century. You think about the Josephs that we know. You've got Jesus' father in Matthew 1.16 is Joseph. Uh, Jesus himself, his name is translated also as Joseph. Uh, you've got a brother of Jesus mentioned in Matthew 13, Joseph. Uh, there's Joseph of Arimathea, mentioned in Matthew 27. There is a Joseph Barsabbas who's set up as possibly being one of the apostles. He's looked over and Matthias is, is chosen in the choosing there in Acts chapter 1. There's just lots of Josephs that we know. There's a lot more I could have put on here, but these are some of the prominent ones that we see. That's a really common name. And yet when this Joseph comes along, in fact, in my Bible, he's called Joses because the, in Hebrew, that's uh, the same uh, uh, name there. But when he comes along, the apostles recognize this is not some ordinary Joe. Sorry, Joe, about that. But uh, he's not some ordinary Joe. It, it perhaps, and we see this sometimes, he didn't want his name to be confused with Jesus' name. And so there's a nickname given. But also, there's something special about this particular Joseph. Since there are so many of them, there's something particular about this one that the apostles wanted to remember and wanted to encourage others with. And I think this is a real blessing, the way God has revealed this for us. 
So he's the son of encouragement, according to this nickname that's given. And this word encouragement is an interesting word. We're going to really analyze the three facets of this word in our character study of Barnabas today. It's from the Greek word paraklesis, which you may recognize from paraklete, which is the Holy Spirit. A paraklesis is a person who comes alongside another to encourage or to exhort, to comfort. And it's really the same work that the Holy Spirit was to do with the apostle. Let's go to John 16 quickly, just to sort of look at how the work of the Holy Spirit is laid out here, and to think about that sort of in the context of the way that, that Barnabas, son of encouragement, lived his life full of the Holy Spirit. In fact, that's one of the things we're told about him later in the text. In John 16, starting at verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Jesus speaking to the apostles here. For if I do not go away, the helper, the comforter, your version may say, the paraclete, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. So Jesus is talking to them about being comforted in John 14. Let your heart not be troubled. You trust in God, trust also in me. They're troubled. He's been talking about going away and he says, but it's really to your advantage. Once I go, I will send you comfort. I will not leave you orphans. And so this concept of the Holy Spirit as the comforter, as the paraclete is not something new. By the time Barnabas comes along, when they give him that name, they're recognizing the presence of God's spirit in this man. That's part of what's going on. He is a comfort or a consolation or a helper. That's what Barnabas is going to be known as. He is a son of encouragement. That's an interesting thing to think about. A son, uh, that idea, that concept, describes someone who reflects the father's character. And so when you call someone the son of something, you're saying that they were born by that particular character. So here's the son of encouragement. Think about how Jesus did this in a negative way with the Pharisees in John 8. He's pointing out their flawed character, and he says uh, in John 8, 44, You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. And so these people are liars, these Pharisees that are claiming back in verse 41 to be sons of God and sons of Abraham. He says, no, you're not. You don't have the character of either of those men. You're of your father, the devil, because you want to do his desires. Uh, and so uh, your character reflects who your father is in that sense. Think about this in, in Jesus' own life, shortly before that, in John chapter 8. I love this text, verses 28 and 29. Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father taught me, I speak these things. Understand Jesus is claiming to be I am here. <laughs> and He's of the same nature of His Father. And so when you lift me up, you'll recognize that when you crucify Him. And he who sent me is with me, verse 29, he says, The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. It's interesting that he says the Father here, speaking of God. Often Jesus claims 
my father in a way that the Jews were not willing to do because he is of the same nature. But over and over we get Jesus saying, my father and the father and I are one and I do the things that please him. And he says over and over in John especially, but in the other texts as well, fear not, I am. (laughs) I am he. And so Jesus in his own life uh, exemplified being the son of the father. And we're called to be that. And there's a contrast. In Ephesians 2, we're told about the sons of disobedience. Ephesians 2 and verse 2, You once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. There are these whose character is of disobedience. In chapter 5 and verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of those things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And yet, the amazing thing for us, 1 John 3, 1, think about what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children or the sons of God. 1 Peter 1, if you call on Him as, as Father, how might your conduct be? What, what must you be in holy conduct? And so this idea of a contrast between sons of disobedience who show who their Father is by the way they disobey, or the sons of God who are learning to, to walk even as Christ walked and be uh, as God is. And so the point of all this is they call Barnabas the son of encouragement. The idea is he was born for this. (laughs) He was born to encourage others. His character is of the father of encouragement. So he's the son of encouragement. We're also told, going back to Acts 4, verse 36, that he is a Levite. It's an interesting thing to mention that. It's an indication of strong roots in Judaism. Certainly he is, uh, he knows his lineage and he's of the priestly lineage. And so Putting that in here, you think about why mention that. <laughs> There's a reason that that's mentioned here. Think about why mention that when it's not mentioned of almost any of the other men that we know so well from the New Testament. We know almost none of the other men's family lineages. Do you know the lineage of Peter? If you do, I'd like to see it. I haven't found it. <laughs> James, John, we know their father's name, but we don't know their house. We don't know what family line they're from. None of the twelve do we have any kind of register of their lineage? We do have a few. We know the lineages of Jesus, and he's from Judah, Luke chapter 3. According to prophecy, he's a son of David, who's from the line of Judah. He's the right to be on the throne. We know who Paul is. He says in Philippians 3 and in Romans 11, both that he is a Pharisee of Pharisees. He is from the tribe of Benjamin. He knows his, he knows his lineage, and, he's, and he points it out, talking about how he was arrogant because of that before, but now that he's rejected that. But we know Paul's lineage, and we know Barnabas, Levi. (laughs) He's a Levite, we're told here. But isn't it kind of conspicuous that we don't know anybody else's lineage? And when that was such an important thing for the Jews, of course, in Christ, it makes sense that we would not remember those lineages anymore because there is no more Jewish lineage. There's no Jew. There's no barbarian. Everyone is equal in Christ. So why mention it when we're talking about Barnabas. Well, when Paul spoke of his lineage, he was trying to use it as a proof of his understanding of the prophecies that confirm the gospel. When he talked at length about his lineage, he was saying, I know these things. I was raised in Judaism. I defended the same hope that these Pharisees are defending, but they're unwilling to stand up for it. I'm going to stand up for it. The hope of Israel has come. And the Christ is among us, and he's, his name is Jesus. So Paul begins to preach those things, but he's leaning on his lineage only as a proof to those Jews that he knows what he's talking about. And over and over when he points it out, that's the purpose. But why mention the lineage 
of Barnabas. Perhaps it's to indicate that he had been a good Jew before his conversion, someone who knew the law, who knew the prophets, and he knows their connection to the gospel. It's interesting that one of the last things Jesus said in Luke chapter 24 links the law and the prophets to the gospel in a very real way. We would expect that. The, the word of God is one. But he says in Luke 24, verse 44, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. <laughs> Who better than a Levite to understand how all of those things connect now to the gospel that he is out serving <laughs> and serving uh, others with this gospel? And so there's a mention of his lineage when we don't really have it of anybody else's. But we're also told, though, that he's of the country of Cyprus. And this is an important distinction as well. It indicates his understanding of the Hellenistic culture. He's not just some Jew who's been cloistered in Jerusalem and only understands the Jewish culture and the Jewish way of thinking. He was raised as a Levite, as a family of Jews, among the Greeks in Cyprus, among this Hellenistic culture. And so he's a perfect bridge between Jew and Gentile. It's going to be a very useful tool then later in his work among the Gentiles, really from Acts 11, 22 forward. Once the, the church at Antioch is formed, he's going to be sent out with Paul to be traveling in the Gentile world and to be uh, uh, reaching the hearts of Gentiles uh, with this word of truth. And we'll talk more about that later. In fact, two of Barnabas' registered evangelistic journeys, there may have been others that aren't registered for us in the book of Acts, but two of them actually began on the island of Cyprus. In Acts 13, the first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas and John Mark, who's Barnabas' cousin, start off in Cyprus. What better way to start than to start among family. Paul later on goes up to Tarsus and starts among family on the other uh, journey when he takes off. And then in Acts 15, when uh, Paul and Barnabas separate, Barnabas and John Mark go back to Cyprus again and begin their uh, missionary journey there. So there's a lot of tie-ins between who Barnabas is and the kind of work that he's going to be doing. So those are some basic facts about him. Now let's sort of examine his example and how this ought to be an example for us. The first thing I want to look at is, as an, as an exhorter, as a son of encouragement, Part of what that definition is, is that he's a comforter. And we find Barnabas in our, in our examples in the book of Acts, comforting the needy. In fact, the first time we meet him, it's in the context of giving, of helping those who are in need. We have this uh, deposit of the saints back from Acts chapter 2. If you'll go back verses 44 and 45, this is as soon as those 3,000 had been converted in Jerusalem, there's sort of an historical uh, interesting situation here that these people had come perhaps for, uh, for the Passover and had stayed as long as Pentecost, some who were coming from further away, but many had come for this high feast day of Pentecost and had planned to go back home, but were converted. And so they began daily to meet with the apostles to learn more and more about this doctrine of Christ as it was being revealed. This is the first time it's being revealed in Acts chapter 2. And they ended up staying on and their resources are running out. But the saints in Jerusalem are providing for them to be able to stay and to continue to grow. I think historically that's a, that's a fascinating thing to look at because right away they've become family in the Lord. And so at verse 44 of Acts 2, "...all who believed were together and had all things in common." and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. 
This concept of having a deposit will, will sort of be developed early on. When we get into chapter 4, we see that as they're doing this, they're laying this money at the apostles' feet. The verb literally is deposited it at the apostles' feet. So there's a verb form of deposit, and we know they've got a collection, a deposit that's been made of this money. And Barnabas is involved in this when we first meet him. He found a way to be helpful. He is from Cyprus, and it seems that he sells some property perhaps from back in Cyprus, in order to have some liquid cash on hand. There's a need that's immediate, and you can't really give someone your property in Cyprus to help them at their immediate need, but he can sell it and use that cash. And that seems to be what Barnabas has done here. It is interesting how years later, some others who may have been influenced by this would be uh, the Macedonians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Verses 3 through 5. I love the way Paul describes how the Macedonians were involved in giving. He says, I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. How do you give beyond your ability? Well, either you take on extra work and you have something to give to him who has need. Ephesians 4, Paul talks about that. Or maybe you take something that you have, a possession of yours, and you sell it so that you then have something to give. That's what we saw Barnabas do when we first meet him. And the Macedonians, who are in extreme poverty, are finding creative ways to be able to be involved in sending things to the saints that are in, in need in Jerusalem. And so they're giving beyond their apparent ability by making resources available. That's amazing to think about. What an encouragement Barnabas would have been as an example to these people. Certainly they would have heard about him by this point and what he had done. They were able to give even what seemed to be beyond their ability. As we look at the context in Acts 4, as they give him the name Son of Encouragement, perhaps it's exactly because of the way that he was so willing to give, to comfort those who had a need by saying, look, whatever I have is yours, and he'd make a way to get it to them. That may be where uh, the reason he got this nickname to begin with. It is interesting that several times we see Barnabas. He's involved in giving. Later we see him helping with the saints at Antioch in Acts chapter 11, verses 29 and 30. Um, we're told that the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea because of a great uh, famine that had happened. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Interesting that usually in the context where Saul's mentioned, Barnabas is first. <laughs> He's the one who's sort of doing the things here. And so he is helping them take this offering from the saints in Antioch. It makes sense. He is a member of the church at Antioch at this point in Acts chapter 13, uh, in Acts chapter 11, and then later we'll see him again in Acts chapter 13 there. And so it's very likely that he himself had contributed personally. Can't imagine that he would have abstained while everybody else was contributing in this. And then he's offered to help carry their gift to Jerusalem with the Apostle Paul. And so in Acts 12, 25, we see that they've done that and they're, they're returning back to Antioch after they fulfilled their ministry, it says in Acts 12. In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul talks about bringing with him people that were selected by the churches. In 2 Corinthians also, he talks about this. He wants to be transparent. 
And so there's more than one person taking the money. Barnabas and Paul and some others actually traveling with them. And then later on when they bring the gift to Jerusalem, it's members from all of the congregations that were involved that have been traveling sort of uh, both to, to express how the congregation was feeling and praying for these people and also for transparency's sake as he's carrying around these great amounts of, of money and goods. But Barnabas is helping out with that offering. The second time we see him, we see him involved already in another offering. Later on, he'll be chosen to carry the letter of encouragement to the Gentiles. This is what I mentioned we get back to. Let's look at Acts 15 here. Because there is this issue that comes up about whether or not Gentiles need to be circumcised and become as Jews before they can then be fully accepted in salvation in Christ. And we'll see later that Barnabas himself struggles with this question and yet, when the time comes to encourage the Gentiles, Barnabas is right there, and he's chosen to carry this letter. Let's read the letter, Acts 15, starting at verse 22. It pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas are going back to Antioch, where they're from, but they're sending others with them, namely Judas, who is also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So they send them off. And look at verse 31. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. This word is periclesis. It's the same word used to describe Barnabas. You'd expect Barnabas to be involved in something as encouraging as carrying this letter to, uh, to the Gentiles. We're told here already that Barnabas has risked his life for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he's willing to continue doing that. This would have been a tough sell in Jerusalem as Barnabas, a Levite, who is now converted, just as Paul, who was a Benjamite, who is now converted, are going through these Jewish lands to encourage the Gentiles to throw off the shackles of Judaism. This was a dangerous trip. And Barnabas is willing to take this on for the encouragement it's going to bring to these, these Gentiles that are, that are converting. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing to see. Besides comforting the needy, which we see him doing over and over, there's another aspect to his work as an encourager, and that is it's encouraging. <laughs> encouraging the discouraged. We certainly see Barnabas doing that. It's one of the things we most remember, perhaps, about Barnabas. Think about this. The Apostle Paul has been converted in Damascus. He's spent some time preaching in Arabia, it seems, and then he decides he's going to come to Jerusalem and he's going to try to join with the church there. And when we get into Acts chapter 9, look at the reception he receives, starting at verse 26. When Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. You know, he'd been dragging people off to prison. 
Some people had been stoned at his word, Stephen, right there in Jerusalem, who had been a member of this congregation. Paul comes back and says, I'm one of you now. (laughs) Yeah, right. Is he coming in to spy us out? Is he coming in to figure out where we all live so then he can get and, and do his work easier? It's been a while since he disappeared up in Damascus. What's he been doing all this time? So there's a lot of suspicion about this man. But Barnabas, verse 27, took him and brought him to the apostles. And he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. Barnabas defended him. Barnabas came and spoke the good things that he knew to be true about this man who everybody was judging and afraid of. The Jews wanted to kill Paul for his conversion. So everywhere Paul goes, he's now in danger of his own countrymen. He says that in 2 Corinthians. The Jews want to kill him because he he was sent with letters to Damascus to bring back these Christians, and now he became one. And then he gets to Jerusalem to join with his brethren, and they said, hold on a second, we don't know you. And they reject him. Sometimes we we picture the Apostle Paul as like a superman. (laughs) You know, he's done a lot of great things. But he's a man. He suffers with the same emotions and the same difficulties we do. And we need to recognize how difficult this must have been for him. And so one like Barnabas comes along. What might have become of the Apostle Paul if he gets to Jerusalem, where the apostles are, where he expects to be received, and he's rejected, and nobody comes to his defense? What might have become of a man like like Paul if it weren't for a man like Barnabas? Might he have given up? We don't know. Fortunately, we don't have to know. Barnabas defended him. And the Apostle Paul became who the Apostle Paul became. But I want to suggest to you, early on, it's in great debt to to a man like Barnabas and others who are willing to take a risk on Paul and encourage him as he served the Lord. Barnabas was that kind of person. It would be hard to be that kind of person, depending on who it is that's trying to come into our assembly who it is that wants to be a member that we may be looking at and saying, I don't think that person's serious about serving the Lord. I'm not sure we want somebody like that among our number. We need to be Barnabases. We need to learn to encourage and see the good and not just the bad. It's so easy to see the flaws. If the Lord's looking at me, I know it's so easy to see my flaws. We don't hide them as well from other people as we think we do either. I know you see my flaws. But how... How hard is it sometimes to look and find the good and encourage the good in people? We need to be like Barnabas in that. As we're reaching out and evangelizing in our neighborhoods, it's so easy to say that person's not going to be interested. (laughs) But maybe that's exactly the kind of person who is interested, who's confused and doesn't know what to do about it and has no one who will advocate for them. The Lord will, but we've got to get the gospel to them. We've got to be more like Barnabas so people don't give up How often maybe some of these people have sought to go to churches and they felt like they've been pushed away because they didn't fit what the church model looks like. We can't let people like that give up. What if there's another Paul out there that needs our encouragement and will do great things? I'm not saying he'll be an apostle, but there are men who are still going to be converted, women who are still going to be converted, who are going to become great workers for the Lord. When Paul was discouraged in Corinth, the Lord said, don't don't stop. I've got a lot of people in this city still. Keep working. Barnabas was a great help to Paul early on. Paul didn't want to take John Mark. (laughs) 
In Acts 15, we know he had abandoned them during the first trip. Paul doesn't want to take John Mark, but in Acts 15, Barnabas says, let's take him. Let's read verses 36 through 39 of Acts 15. Um, After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, so it's his idea to go do this, let's now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we've preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. What a great idea. Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and not gone with them to the work. The contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. Barnabas was intent that he's going to help this young man to overcome whatever the difficulty was that made him back out before. He's taking him with him. And if it has to be that you don't go, Paul, then fine. You go somewhere else. I'm taking John Mark with me. And he was willing to separate from Paul over this. It's a contention that became so sharp that they separated. It's not that they were fighting over the gospel. <laughs> they were just sort of at a disagreement about the best way to handle how to get the work done. Paul, what he was doing was a good thing. And so he went off and took uh, Silas with him, eventually Timothy and others, while Barnabas took John Mark. And when you think about the effect that had on this young man, it's Barnabas' cousin, so he has an in with him. But he's rejected by the apostle Paul. Can you imagine what that would have felt like? Paul had been rejected perhaps by Peter and the other apostles. And now this young man comes along and the apostle Paul, who's known at this point, well known, rejects him. How would that make him feel? And yet Barnabas comes along and encourages him. So that by the time Paul writes 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 11, by the time he writes Philemon verses 23 and 24, he says, John Mark is very needful for me. He's useful for the ministry. Bring him. (laughs) Bring him with you. And after such encouragement, he ends up writing the gospel that I most use to evangelize, the gospel of Mark. Succinct to the point, full of these great uh, stories about the Lord. And John Mark is the one who ended up writing that. What a blessing that Barnabas was able to help this man. Because can you imagine the discouragement after the apostle said, nope, I don't want you going with me. It might have made him give up. And yet Barnabas was there. Besides comforting the needy and being involved in giving of himself and of his resources, and besides taking on difficult cases and encouraging them to, to become what they ought to be and what they can be, seeing the potential in people, he also was very skilled at exhorting the newly converted, obviously exhorting the, the more converted as well, we see. But... When they heard about the conversions in Antioch in Acts chapter 11 and verse 22, they, the, the church in Jerusalem hears about these Gentiles that have been converted. They sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. You ever think about why they would have chosen Barnabas? I mean, he's a perfect man for this work. He is a Jew who understands the Hellenistic culture. And so when he got there, verse 23, and saw the grace of God, this is Acts eleven twenty-three. He was glad and encouraged them, there's that word, that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. He exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, it says in the English Standard Version. I love that. He has come and and exhorted these new Christians. They're in a difficult spot. There's Jews and Gentiles together in this congregation. We see in Romans how tough that would have been, all the 
the differences that they had culturally. They might have been separating each other already. Barnabas comes and he works as a perfect bridge for those two cultures. He's a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, so people are added to the Lord. I want you to notice, I love this text in Acts 11, that over and over the focus is the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. He doesn't come up from Jerusalem and say, hey, your church needs to be like the church back in Jerusalem. He says, you need to serve the same Lord we're serving back in Jerusalem. The Lord is the focus. And as he exhorts these new converts, he says, you with steadfast purpose cling to the Lord. Remain faithful to the Lord. And the result? People were added to the Lord. That's the way it needs to be. Of course, he was not a perfect man. We see very clearly his faults. They're, they're spelled out before us. He stumbles really badly in this Jew-Gentile contention over the circumcision issue. Uh, uh, it's hard to know the timing of when Acts 15 uh, was written to know if this was before or after that he stumbled. I like to believe that he stumbled before that and then was used to carry this letter to sort of uh, uh, sort of a, a, a vein of redemption for him. But look at Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, what Paul writes here. When Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? Barnabas stumbled. Stumbled badly. This was sinful. The the attitude he was having, he was becoming a hypocrite. He was carried away with the hypocrisy of Peter and the others. Paul was shocked because he'd seen the great proven character of Barnabas. He was shocked that he would stumble in such a question as this. But even those who are encouragers often need to be encouraged themselves. And so Paul encouraged him with the truth. He withstood Peter to his face. He taught him the truth. And we see, obviously, Barnabas changed. He changed his his manner of dealing with this. But he's not held up as a perfect man. We do see that he repented. Later on, we do see him given over to the Lord's work. As I mentioned in Acts 15, he's carrying that letter. He's taking it all around everywhere they go. Uh, Perhaps even the letter to the Galatians and the work that was done in Galatia was a result of some of this work that was done there in Jerusalem. Sometimes we are shy about uh, getting to the work of being a Barnabas because we think, well, I'm not perfect. People are going to see through me. I don't know the best way to do this. I don't don't have the tools I need. Barnabas set the work. (laughs) He became a son of encouragement, not because he examined every single situation and thought about whether or not he could, became a son of encouragement because he set to the work of encouraging people. He got in and he, and he did what he could do. I'm not saying we should make excuses for our sin. He repented and he was given then to the Lord's work because of his repentance. He carried the letter. He helped in Antioch. He helped Mark. He helped Paul. In the end, what we see as we look at his example is like any good servant, his own life is an exhortation. Romans 15.4 and 1 Corinthians 10 and some other uh, texts like those really show us God's purpose in revealing what he has. I just think it's, it's amazing to think about this. At the beginning we ask why these details about Barnabas' life. Why are these details given to us? Romans 15.4, whatever things were written before were written for our learning, 
that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. 1 Corinthians 10 talks about the things that happened to the Israelites happened for an example that we would learn from the things they went through. Well, that didn't stop with the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we have the examples of Christ and of the apostles and of other faithful servants that serve to teach us and exhort us and encourage us to serve in the way we ought to. God revealed the things he did about Barnabas because it's sort of what he expects from us in our own character as we learn to be sons of encouragement. Barnabas repented, and it becomes obvious when we see the work that he was able to do after his stumbling. Barnabas is not his real name. (laughs) But how many of you ever think of him as Joseph? (laughs) We know him as Barnabas. That nickname stuck because the character behind that nickname was so apparent. It's the name we know him by in the New Testament. It's the name given by the apostles. But I want you to understand that it's the name that was registered by God in the text. (laughs) The apostles could have given him that nickname, could have given others nicknames, and if God hadn't registered that, we'd never even know about it. But the Holy Spirit saw fit to reveal that detail, that his nickname is Barnabas, and we see him as a Barnabas all through the text. (laughs) If we were to consider... God, registering our names or the nicknames that if maybe some apostles were to visit and they would see the service that we're providing, what kind of name might we be registered by? What kind of nickname might someone who is serving the Lord faithfully and encouraged by our service give us? There are sons and daughters of encouragement here. I I promise you that. There are sons and daughters of prayer here. There are sons and daughters of giving and of serving in many ways here. And I've known many of them throughout my lifetime as as a Christian. But what if the name that might be registered was son of complacency or daughter of doing the bare minimum? We need to be careful as we're following examples, that we're seeking for these good examples, that we're analyzing the character that God has exalted and has revealed enough detail for us to see and determine that we're going to be that type of son or that type of daughter. After all, we're called to be sons of the Most High. We need to be imitating everything we can about His character. The fruit of the Spirit, as spelled out in Galatians chapter 5, as that's produced in our lives, we ought to be becoming sons and daughters of those very things that that fruit of the Spirit brings. The question is, whose son are you? It's possible that you're not a son of God that you haven't given yourself to God in Christ. He's called you to that. He wants to glorify you and raise you up to a new life if you're willing to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, to come forward repenting of your sins, putting those behind you, having God remove those from you as you enter into the waters of baptism and rise to a new life. If we can help you do that today, that would be our joy. We certainly want to help you do that. We want to encourage you to serve God with your whole heart in accordance with His will. If you already are a son of God, but you're afraid that your nickname would be son of complacency or son of doing the bare minimum or son of something that you would not be encouraged for others to think about you, the Lord sees those things. If you need to repent, if you need our encouragement and our help that you can do better, if you want to encourage us to do better, whatever your need may be, we want to attend to that need today. Don't wait. If we can help you, come forward and let your need be known.